0: Section five of Beacon Lights of History, Volume eleven American Founders by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand Benjamin Franklin, Part Three. It is not to be supposed that the French monarchy had any deep sympathy with the Americans in their struggle for independence. Only a few years had elapsed since the colonies had fought with England against France, to her intense humiliation. Canada had been by their help wrenched from her hands. But France hated England, and was jealous of her powers, and would do anything to cripple that traditional enemy. Secret and mysterious overtures had been made to Congress, which led it to hope for assistance. And yet the government of France could do nothing openly, for fear of giving umbrage to her rival, since the two powers were at peace, and both were weary of hostilities. Both were equally exhausted by the Seven Years' War. Moreover, the king, Louis the Fifteenth sought above all things repose and pleasure. It was a most unpropitious time for the colonies to seek for aid, when the policy of the French government was pacific, and when Turgot was obliged to exert his financial genius to the utmost to keep the machine of the government in running order. Under these circumstances, the greatest prudence, circumspection, and tact were required of a financial and diplomatic agent sent to squeeze money from the French treasury. If aid were granted at all, it must be done covertly, without exciting even the suspicions of the English emissaries at Paris. But hatred of England prevailed over the desire of peace, and money was promised. There were then in France many distinguished men who sympathized with the American cause, while the young king himself seems to have had no decided opinions about the matter. The philosophy of Rousseau had permeated even aristocratic circles. There was a charm in the dogma that all men were created equal. It pleased sentimental philosophers and sympathetic women. I wonder why the king, then absolute, did not see its logical consequences. Surely there were rumblings in the political atmosphere to which he could not be deaf, and yet with inconceivable apathy and levity the blinded monarch pursued his pleasures, and remarked to his courtiers that the storm would not burst in his time. Après moi, le déluge. Turgeot, the ablest man in France, would have stood aloof, but Turgot had been dismissed, and the Count de Virginie was at the helm, a man whose ruling passion was hatred of England. If he could help the colonies, he would, provided he could do it secretly. So he made use of a fortunate adventurer, originally a watchmaker, by the name of Beaumarchais, who set up for a merchant, through whom supplies were sent to America. All paid for, however, out of the royal exchequer. The name even of this supposed mercantile house was fictitious. A million of livres were transmitted through this firm to America, apparently for business purposes, silas dean of connecticut the first agent of the americans alone being acquainted with the secret he could not keep it however but imparted it to a friend who was a british spy in consequence most of the ships of Horteles and company loaded with military stores were locked up by technical governmental formalities in french ports while the american vessels bearing tobacco and indigo in exchange also failed to appear the firm was in danger of bankruptcy while lord Stormont, The British ambassador complained to Virginie of the shipment of contraband goods, an offense against the law of nations. Amid the embarrassments which Dean had brought about by his indiscretion, Franklin arrived at Paris. But he wisely left Dean to disentangle the affairs of the supposed mercantile house, until this unfortunate agent was recalled by Congress, a broken-down man who soon after died in England, poor and dishonored. Dean had also embarrassed Franklin and still more the military authorities at home by the indiscriminate letters of commendation he gave to the impecunious and incapable German and French officers as being qualified to serve in the American army. Probably no American ever was hailed in Paris with more éclat than Benjamin Franklin. His scientific discoveries, his cause invested with romantic interest, his courtly manners, his agreeable conversation, and his reputation for wisdom and wit made him an immediate favorite among all classes with whom he came in contact. He was universally regarded as the Apostle of Liberty and the impersonation of philosophy. Not wishing to be too conspicuous, and dreading interruptions to his time, he took up his residence at Passy, a suburb of Paris, where he lived most comfortably, keeping a carriage and entertaining at dinner numerous guests. He had a beautiful garden, in which he delighted to show his experiments to distinguished people. His face always wore a placid and benignant expression he had no enemies and many friends his society was particularly sought by fashionable ladies and eminent savants while affable and courteous he was not given to flattery he was plain and straightforward in all he said and did thus presenting a striking contrast to diplomatists generally indeed he was a universal favorite which john adams when he came to be associated with him could not understand adams was sent to france in 1778 to replace silas dean and while there was always jealous of Franklin's ascendancy in society and in the management of American affairs. He even complained that the elder envoy was extravagant in his mode of living. In truth, Franklin alone had the ear of the Count de Vergennes, through whom all American business was transacted, which exceedingly nettled the intense, confident, and industrious Adams, whose vanity was excessive. I need not dwell on the embarrassments of Franklin in raising money for the American cause. There was no general confidence in its success among European bankers or statesmen. The French government feared to compromise itself. Many of the remittances already sent had been intercepted by British cruisers. The English minister at Paris stormed and threatened. The news from America was almost appalling, for the British troops had driven Washington from New York and Long Island, and he appeared to be scarcely more than a fugitive in New Jersey, with only three or 4,000 half-starved and half-frozen followers. A force of 10,000 men had been recently ordered to America under General Burgoyne. Almost discouraged, the envoys applied for loans to the Dutch bankers and to Spain, but without success. It was not until December 1777, when the news arrived in France of the surrender of General Burgoyne and his army to the Americans at Saratoga, New York, in October, that Franklin had any encouragement. Not until it was seen that the conquest of America was hopeless did the French government really come to the aid of the struggling cause, and then privately. Spain joined with France in offers of assistance, but as she had immense treasures on the ocean liable to capture, the matter was kept secret. When secrecy was no longer possible, a commercial treaty was made between the United States and the Allies, February sixth, 1778, but was not signed until Arthur Lee of Virginia, one of the commissioners, had made a good deal of mischief by his capricious opposition to Franklin whom he envied and hated. The treaty becoming known to the English government in a few days, Lord North, who saw breakers ahead, was now anxious for conciliation with America. It was too late. There could be no conciliation short of the acknowledgment of American independence, and a renewal of war between France and England became certain. If the conquest of the United States had been improbable, it had now become impossible, with both France and Spain as their allies, but the English government, with stubborn malignity, persevered in the hopeless warfare. After the recall of Silas Deane, the business of the embassy devolved chiefly on Franklin, who indeed within a year was appointed sole minister, Adams and Lee being relieved. Besides his continuous and exhausting labors in procuring money for Congress at home and for nearly all of its representatives abroad, Franklin was always affecting some good thing for his country. He especially commended to the American authorities the Marquis de Lafayette, then a mere Youth, who had offered to give his personal services to the conflict for liberty. This generous and enthusiastic nobleman was a great accession to the American cause, from both a political and a military point of view, and always retained the friendship and confidence of Washington. Franklin rendered important services in securing the amelioration of the condition of the American prisoners in England, who theretofore had been treated with great brutality. After years of patient and untiring effort, he so well succeeded that they were now honorably exchanged according to the rules of war. Among the episode of this period, largely due to Franklin's sagacity and monetary aid, was the gallant career of John Paul Jones, a Scotchman by birth who had entered the American Navy as lieutenant and in one short cruise had taken 16 British prizes, the first man to hoist the stars and stripes on a national vessel. He was also the first to humble the pride of England in its sorest points since, with unparalleled audacity, he had successfully penetrated to the harbor of the town in which he was born. The Bonhomme Richard, a large frigate of forty guns of which by the aid of franklin jones secured the command and which he named in honor of poor richard of the almanac made his name famous throughout both europe and america the turning point of the american war was the surrender of burgoyne which brought money and men and open aid from france the decisive event was the surrender of lord cornwallis october nineteenth seventeen eighty one to washington commanding the allied french and american forces with the aid of the french fleet Although the war was still continued in a half-hearted way, the Cornwallis disaster convinced England of its hopelessness and led to negotiations for peace. In these, the diplomatic talents of Franklin eclipsed his financial abilities, and this was the more remarkable, since he was not trained in the diplomatic school where dissimulation was the leading peculiarity. He gained his points by frank, straightforward lucidity of statement and marvelous astuteness, combined with an imperturbable command of his temper. The trained diplomatists of Europe, with their casuistry and lies, found in him their match. The subjects to be discussed and settled, however, were so vital and important that Congress associated with Franklin, John Adams, minister at The Hague, and John Jay, then accredited to Madrid. Nothing could be more complicated than the negotiations between the representatives of the different powers. First, there was a compact between the United States and their allies that peace should not be concluded without their common consent, and each power had some selfish aim in view. Then, England and France each sought a separate treaty. In England itself were divided councils. Fox had France to look after, and Shelburne the United States, and these rival English statesmen were not on good terms with each other. In the solution of the many questions that arose, John Jay displayed masterly ability. He would take nothing for granted while Franklin reposed the utmost confidence in the Count de Virginie. Jay soon discovered that the French minister had other interests at heart than those of America alone, that he had an eye on a large slice of the territories of the United States, that he wanted some substantial advantage for the ships and men he had furnished. He wanted no spoils, for there were no spoils to divide, but he wanted unexplored territories extending to the Mississippi, which Jay had no idea of granting. There were other points to which Franklin attached but little importance, but which were really essential in the eye of Jay. Among other things, the agent of England, a Mr. Oswald, a man of high character and courteous bearing, was empowered to treat with the Thirteen Colonies, to which Franklin, eager for peace, saw no objection. But Jay declined to sign the preliminaries of peace unless the independence and sovereignty of the United States were distinctly acknowledged. At this stage of the negotiations, John Adams, honest but impetuous and irritable, hastened from the Hague to take part in the negotiations. He sided with Jay and Franklin had to yield, which he did gracefully, probably attaching but small importance to the matter in question. What mattered it whether the triumphant belligerents were called colonies or states so long as they were free? To astute lawyers like Jay and Adams, however, the recognition of the successfully rebellious colonies as sovereign states was a main point in issue. From that time, as Franklin suffered from a severe illness, Jay was the life of the negotiations, and the credit is generally given to him for the treaty which followed, and which was hurried through hastily, for fear that a change in the British ministry would hazard its success. It came near alienating France, however, since it had been distinctly understood that peace should not be made without the consent of all the contracting powers, and this treaty was made with England alone. Franklin, in the transaction, was the more honest, and Jay the more astute. Strictly speaking, all these three commissioners rendered important services in their various ways. Franklin's urbanity and frankness, and the high esteem in which he was held, both in France and in England, made easy the opening of the negotiations, and he gained a special point in avoiding any agreement of indemnity to American royalists who had suffered in person or property during the war, while he maintained pleasant relations with France when Virginie was pursuing his selfish policy to prevent the United States from becoming too strong, and when he became indignant that the treaty had been concluded with England irrespective of France. Jay, with keen Sagacity, fathomed the schemes of the French minister, and persistently refused to sign a treaty of peace unless it was satisfactory and promised to be permanent and mutually advantageous. Adams was especially acquainted with the fisheries question and its great importance to New England, and he insisted on the right of Americans to fish on the banks of Newfoundland. All three persisted in the free navigation of the Mississippi, which it was the object of Spain to prevent. Great Britain, Spain, and France would have enclosed the United States by territories of their own and would have made odious commercial restrictions. By the firmness and sagacity of these three diplomatists, the United States finally secured all they wanted and more than they expected. The preliminary articles were signed November thirtieth, seventeen 1782, and the final treaties of peace between England, France, and the United States on September third, seventeen 1783. These negotiations, at last having been happily concluded, Franklin wished to return home but he remained at the request of Congress to arrange commercial treaties with the various European nations. Reluctantly, at last, his request to be relieved was granted, and he left France in July 1785. Thomas Jefferson was appointed to the position. You replace Dr. Franklin, said the Count de Vergennes to the new plenipotentiary. I succeed him, replied Jefferson. No one can replace him. Franklin would have been the happiest man in Europe at the conclusion of peace negotiations, but for his increasing bodily infirmities, especially the gout, from which at times he suffered excruciating agonies. He was a universal favorite, admired and honored as one of the most illustrious men living. His house in Paris was the scene of perpetual hospitalities. Among his visitors were the younger Pitt, Wilberforce, Romilly, and a host of other celebrities, French and English, especially eminent scientific men. He was then seventy-eight years of age, but retained all the vivacity of youth. His conversation is said to have been as enchanting as it was instructive. His wit and humor never ceased to flow. His pregnant sentences were received as oracles. He was a member of the French Academy and attended most of its meetings. He was a regular correspondent of the most learned societies of Europe. When the time came for him to return home, he was too ill to take leave of the King or even of the Minister of Foreign Affairs. But Louis the Sixteenth ordered one of the royal litters to convey the venerable sufferer to the coast, as he could not bear the motion of a carriage. In his litter, swung between two mules, Franklin slowly made his way to Havre, and thence proceeded to Southampton to embark for America. The long voyage agreed with him, and he arrived in Philadelphia in September, in improved health, after an absence of nine years. No one would have thought him old except in his walk, his feet being tender and swollen with the gout. His voice was still firm, his cheeks were ruddy, his eyes bright, and his spirits high. Settled in his fine house in Market Street, surrounded by his grandchildren and idolatrous neighbors and friends, he was a rare exception to the rule that a prophet is not without honor save in his own country. He had fortune, friends, fame, and a numerous family who never disgraced his name. Of all the great actors in the stormy times in which he lived, he was one of the most fortunate. He had both genius and character, which the civilized world appreciated, and so prudent had been his early business life and his later investments that he left a fortune of about one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, a great sum to accumulate in his times. The last important service rendered by Franklin to his country was as a member of the memorable convention which gave the Constitution to the American nation in 1787. Of this assembly, in which sat Washington, Hamilton, Madison, Dickinson, Livingston, Ellsworth, Sherman, and other great men, Franklin was the Nestor, in wisdom as well as years. He was too feeble to take a conspicuous part in the discussions, but his opinion and counsel had great weight whenever he spoke, for his judgment was never clearer than when he had passed fourscore years. The battle of words had to be fought by younger and more vigorous men, of whom perhaps Madison was the most prominent. At no time of his life, however, was Franklin a great speaker, except in conversation, but his mind was vigorous to the end. This fortunate man lived to see the complete triumph of the cause to which he had devoted his public life. He lived also to see the beginning of the French Revolution, to which his writings had contributed. He lived to see the amazing prosperity of his country when compared with its condition under royal governors. One of his last labors was to write an elaborate address in favor of Negro emancipation and as president of an abolition society to send a petition to Congress to suppress the slave trade. A few weeks before his death, he replied to a letter of President Stiles of Yale College setting forth his theological belief. Had he been more orthodox, he would have been more extolled by those men who controlled the religious opinions of his age. Franklin died placidly on the 17th of April, 1790, in the 85th year of his age, and his body was followed to the grave by most of the prominent citizens of Philadelphia in the presence of 20,000 spectators. James Madison pronounced his eulogy in Congress and Mirabeau in the French National Assembly, while the most eminent literary men in both Europe and America published elaborate essays on his deeds and fame, recognizing the extent of his knowledge, the breadth of his wisdom, his benevolence, his patriotism, and his moral worth. He modestly claimed to be only a printer. But who, among the great lights of his age, with the exception of Washington, has left a nobler record? Authorities Mr. James Parton has, I think, written the most interesting and exhaustive life of Franklin, although it is not artistic and is full of unimportant digressions. Sparks has collected most of his writings, which are rather dull reading. The autobiography of Franklin was never finished, a unique writing, as frank as The Confessions of Rousseau. A good biography is one by Morse in the series of American Statesmen, which he is editing. Not a very complimentary view of Franklin is taken by McMaster in this series of American Men of Letters. See also Bancroft's United States. End of section 5.